hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. Is there a military solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I am joined now by the author of the historical background in this issue, Andrew Roberts, honorary senior scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge, and of course, a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Hello. Now, I want to start with the notion that's at the heart of your piece for Strategica, and that's the idea that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as long and interminable as it may seem given sort of the patience and attention span of, of modern Western audiences uh, may just really be getting started. Explain that. Well, it's been going on really since 1967. Some might even argue 20 years longer than that, back to 1948 and the creation of the State of Israel, um, which sounds like an enormously long period of time. But there have been issues that have been longer than that in human history. And when one looks at, uh, for example, Max Boot's book, Invisible Armies, which uh, covers the story of, um, of uh, uprisings and uh, sedition and um, guerrilla warfare and the rest, one realizes that, um, that there are actual older and, uh, and more deep-seated um, wars than uh, even the Israeli-Palestinian problem. So, Andrew, as you point out in your piece, the issue here for the Israelis is is not capability. I mean, they could clear out the Arab populations of Gaza and the West Bank, and as you mentioned in your piece, maybe even southern Lebanon if they wanted to, but they're not going to do it. Why? What, what's the dynamic at work there that restrains that kind of sort of once-and-for-all solution? Well, human rights, the, the whole issue of human rights that's grown up really since the uh, foundation of the United Nations Human Rights Commission and the whole concept of modern human rights. In a way, this is something that has, uh, of course, in the short term, I suppose, uh, worked to the Palestinians' advantage. In the long term, however, it does mean that they are locked in this seemingly now endless struggle and uh, I'm not sure that uh, anybody's human rights are well served as a result of that. Now, I want to get you to flesh out uh, an aside in your piece because it's one that certainly cuts against the grain in terms of most media coverage of this conflict. You write that the world media has been – I'm quoting you here – heavily biased towards the Palestinian narrative, which since 1967 it has wrongly, in my view, your view, construed as that of the underdog. So – we know that Israel possesses superior resources and, and capabilities relative to the Palestinians. Why shouldn't the Palestinians be regarded as the underdogs? Because if you do regard them as the underdog, you're not looking at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is one of Israel, uh, a tiny country geographically and numerically, uh, financially, and indeed overall militarily, compared to the Arab countries, the 22 Arab states that uh, surround Israel. So just to look at the Israeli-Palestinian problem is a ridiculous, in my view, an absurd way of looking at the greater problems of the Middle East in which Israel is surrounded and is heavily outnumbered. 
In your piece, you quote David Ben-Gurion, the first Israeli prime minister. Uh, This is the quote here from him. For us, there exists no hope of a final war. After every war we win, the Arabs can recover and start a new one in which they can hope for a decisive and terminal victory. To which you, Andrew Roberts, add, yet he hoped that if every time the Arabs attacked, as in 1948, 1967, and 1973, they were decisively defeated, then perhaps after a while they would relegate the destruction of Israel to political rhetoric and ever hopeful prayer. Now, Andrew, best I can tell, the numbers vary somewhat on this, but it looks like about over 4,000 rockets have been launched at Israel from Gaza this year, not to mention the discovery of this elaborate network of, of underground tunnels that allow Palestinians to capture and, and potentially kill Israelis. This is something more than political rhetoric and hopeful prayer, even after all these conflicts. So what did Ben-Gurion get wrong? Well, I suppose he got wrong the sheer um, tenacity of the uh, of the Palestinians in that these, as you say, these um, these tunnels, of which there are some 36 that have been found, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that those are all of them. Uh, and the 4,000 rockets that you mentioned um, still have, have still been fired. Well, in all these years since 1967, um, they've they've uh, they've all been fired. Did you say in the last year? It or uh, in the last um, in the last uh, outbreak of the of the conflict? I mean, this is these, these are big numbers. Very very impressive, dangerous, lethal, vicious numbers. And that's probably something that uh, that even Ben-Gurion, who's a, who's a uh, wise and far-sighted statesman, could have um, possibly imagined that, uh, that, that we'd still be in a situation, even today, so many years later, when, um, when, when hard, hit, hard punches were still going to be um, leveled against the uh, Israelis from uh, from places like Gaza. Now, as you know, there there was a window where it looked like Ben Gurion's hope might be coming to fruition. This was when you saw Jordan and Egypt under Sadat come to their peace with Israel. Maybe you could say a cold peace, but a peace nonetheless. Um, what was what was the limiting factor on that success? In other words. What made Egypt and Jordan different? Why did it happen there and not in other states in the region? Uh, well, firstly, of course, they were much closer to to Israel. They were on the receiving end of uh, of uh, Israeli um, power in 1973 um, and indeed in 1967. Um, and so it was much more um, uh, straightforward for them. They also, of course, both of those countries... Um, have been under a certain degree of, of threat from uh, the Palestinians. Uh, the uh, a great large number of um, Palestinians who live in Jordan and uh, the uh, and the connections between Gaza and Egypt have not always been happy. And so uh, it seems to me that the closer you are to the Palestinians uh, and the closer you are geographically to Israel, um, the the more you want to make peace with Israel if you're if you're an Arab country, which is um, the opposite of what you'd expect to be the case um, if you believed uh, Palestinian propaganda. But one one point that I'd like to go back to slightly with regard to these um, these rockets, which also continues from your from your last question, and that is that that um, uh, we uh, in the West, in Britain, and in America. Um, 
completely fail, I think, in a terribly hypocritical way. We completely fail to question ourselves about what we would do under the same circumstances. Were we, um, proportionately, of course, to um, be facing, well, in Britain's case, tens of thousands, and in America's case, um, many tens of thousands of rockets infarded us from a, a territory so close to us, or to have tunnels, which of course America you know, doesn't have to face either really from, um, from Canada or Mexico, and Britain certainly doesn't have to face from anywhere being an island. But if we had tunnels tunneling into our territory, attack tunnels, which were designed um, solely really to, uh, to kill and kidnap our citizens, I think personally that there is absolutely nothing that the British or the American governments would not do to counter this uh, threat. And the way in which the Israeli government have countered it, I think, is, um, is something that the populations of Britain and America would fully support if the same thing happened to them. So let's play this forward. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you're arguing here that the dynamic on the ground in the region may keep this conflict going for a long time, that there's a a sort of equilibrium, even if it's not necessarily a, a very benign one, that's likely to hold for the foreseeable future, given the dynamics that are at work here between the Israeli st- restraint and the uh, sort of Palestinian tenacity. At Strategica in your piece, you note some other conflicts that put this one to shame in terms of endurance. Um, quoting you here, the Italians waited 183 years for Napoleon to rid them of the Austrians after all, and the Greeks waited over 600 years before the Turks left their shores. Now, Granted, when we're talking about those kinds of time horizons, I realize that the question that I'm about to ask you is inherently speculative. But what are some of the factors that you could eventually see breaking this impasse? What conceivably catalyzes the situation out of the equilibrium that it's currently in? Colleen, um, I'm not I'm – I'm an English Tory, a uh, Thatcherite uh, conservative, and so I'm not terribly uh, given to um, – uh, to um, optimism, <laughs> optimism <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as a political force, let alone um, let alone the kind of uh, of universal massive uh, optimism necessary to uh, to answer your question in any kind of short timeline. Um, it, um, it it would be utopianism, frankly. But nonetheless, um, if one must look at it, I suppose that um, there must be a point at which the rest of the um, Arab League appreciates that Israel really is going nowhere now. It is, it is not about to, uh, after 66 years as an independent nation, to um, just sort of turn over and, um, and play dead. So there must be a point after two generations, political generations, at which... Um, the people who uh, who actually benefit from this sense of, uh, of fury and uh, irredentism and outrage of the Palestinians, um, and who've been, by the way, uh, really stoking it for a very long time as well, uh, that they actually realise that the, that the game isn't worth the candle. Another thing that might um, help, of course, would be um, Israel seems to be on the verge of becoming a... Uh, very rich nation with regard to this uh, oil that it's found in the gas. I'm sorry, down in the uh, in the Mediterranean. If it were able to sort of look Arab countries in the eye financially, um, I'm sure that would help. 
Equally, looking at it from the horrific and uh, ghastly perspective that I'm afraid I think we have to, um, that of uh, Iran actually developing and uh, deploying a nuclear bomb, that too might uh, alter, the, alter the game uh, in, a, in, in a horrible way. But uh, otherwise, you know, beyond that, it seems to me that we are stuck in a, uh, in a, in a long, drawn-out and, uh, and pretty dreadful endgame. So final question. We've done a lot of history here. That, of course, is your profession. And, of course, the goal of Strategic is to try to synthesize history and current events. So what are the sort of immediate policy implications here for the, for the West or, or for Israel? As you're giving this diagnosis, if a policymaker is listening to the case that you've just laid out here, what should they be walking away with? Well, I think that um, the first thing is if we are going to accept that, uh, that Israel's here to stay, which I, I do hope people will do because everything that it's done since 1948 does uh, imply that it really is, um, is to appreciate Israel for the first time, for a long time at least, as the front-line um, front nation in a Western struggle rather than um, the West standing separate and watching Israel in a, uh, in a, in a uh, sort of local Middle Eastern struggle. This should be seen as a, as a global struggle um, and one that uh, Israel is really the, uh, the sort of canary down the mine shaft for the rest of uh, civilization rather than a uh, separate um, entity in and of itself. So um, I think that it would be very helpful where, where as you say, a, a policymaker to be listening to the show to uh, really get to grips with anti-Semitism in the, uh, in the West and in Europe. A uh, horrific series of anti-Semitic attacks have been taking place in Europe. I'm in London at the moment, um, and, uh, and we've had a, uh, a threatened ISIS beheading in this city um, only in the last uh, 48 hours. You know, things that really seem completely impossible to, uh, to imagine are happening. And it strikes me that we're not really doing enough to, um, to stand by the Jews in their, in their struggle in the Middle East, even in so far as fighting against the hate preachers, the anti-Semitic hate preachers that we have really uh, throughout Europe. And these people should be... Uh, to be um, uh, exposed and, and in many cases, and in the worst cases, um, stripped of their passports and, and expelled from the country. All right. Our guest has been Andrew Roberts, honorary senior scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of the group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. That's S T R A T E. G-I-K-A. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much indeed. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. Hoover.org.